Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you bring your faith into public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Good morning, Kit. Hey, good morning to all of our listeners. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you have a very blessed Saturday. You can join us each Saturday here on Relevant Radio AM 1330 at 11 a.m. But if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes of The Bridge Builder, just visit mncatholic.org podcast. You can also find The Bridge Builder podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Each week we try to bring you great interviews on some of the major issues impacting how we live our faith in the public arena. We also answer your questions via our mailbag segment, and you can email this to us at show at mncatholic.org or contact us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And it wouldn't be the bridge builder if we didn't bring you practical ways to be a missionary disciple in political life through our bricklayer segment. The common good is built brick by brick. As Americans, we're all familiar with the phrase, one nation under God in our Pledge of Allegiance, or in the phrase, in God we trust, on the back of our money. But yet, for some time now, for decades, you might say, there's been a great debate swirling as to what role faith played in the founding of our nation. What role is it central to our identity? Is this a Christian nation? Uh, Vigorous debate has swirled around those sorts of questions today. To delve deeper into that discussion and to give us a survey of the literature and to offer his own contribution to the conversation, uh, we've invited Dr. Mark David Hall to join us uh, on the Bridge Builder program today. He is the author of the book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? Separating Modern Myth from Historical Truth. Dr. Hall is is Herbert Hoover Distinguished Professor of Politics at George Fox University in Newburgh, Oregon. Uh, glad to have you with us this morning, Dr. Hall. Welcome to the Bridge Builder Show. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. Why is there such a voluminous and vigorous debate about whether the United States was founded as a Christian nation? Well, I make a distinction in my book between America being founded as a Christian nation, which sounds very exclusive, as if it's founded just for Christians, and America is having a Christian founding, by which I mean that America's founders were influenced in profound ways by their Christian convictions. And I think it's very controversial because the founders' views are absolutely relevant for today. Politicians are routinely appealing back to the founders as authorities, and particularly U.S. Supreme Court justices and other judges have insisted that we must understand or must interpret the First Amendment religion clauses. Congress shall make no law respecting establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof in light of the Founders' views. And so our understanding of the Founders' views on these subjects can have very important implications for religious liberty and church-state relations today. In this time of identity politics, do these discussions play into those issues as well about, you know, who are we, how do we define ourselves, how do we foster the common good, what should be our priorities in public life? Does that, do those issues, this historical, what seems like a historical debate, um, is it relevant for those discussions today? Yeah, I think so, and particularly um, critics on the other side, progressives who want to drive religion from the public square, will usually say things like, well, you know, if America was founded as a Christian nation, then there's no room for Jews or Muslims or Sikhs, and obviously we can't, you know, that's unacceptable today, so we should just banish um, this view. My argument, on the other hand, as I've already suggested, is that because America's founders were influenced by Christian ideas, they developed a constitutional order characterized by things such as the rule of law and federalism, checks and balances, separation of powers. And these things benefit all citizens today, Protestants, Catholics, Jews, Muslims, Sikhs, 
and even atheists. When it comes to religious liberty, I actually go out of my way to argue in my book that America's founders clearly understood that the religious prince, religious liberty principles that they were embracing about the state and the national level protects all citizens. And one of my favorite stories here is a wonderful um, letter from George Washington to the Hebrew synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island. There are only about 2,000 Jews in America at the time, so it's a tiny, tiny minority. And yet George Washington makes it crystal clear that Jews, just like Catholics, just like Protestants, have the um, have the right, the God-given right, to worship God according to the dictates of conscience and to bring the religion into the public square. So it's not just a freedom of worship, but it's a free exercise of religion. And so I think all Americans have good reason to rejoice that America had a Christian founding insofar as the founders were influenced by Christian ideas. So if I were to nutshell it, you might say that the founders didn't create the United States as a Christian nation uh, exclusively for Christians, but they built the American experiment on Christian principles in a way that would be inclusive for all peoples. Is that Would that be a good summary of your argument? That's exactly right. Exactly right. Now, I think, you know, here, here we come down to, you know, thinking about how we as Christians might engage with culture. I think as Christians, we should absolutely be praying that those um, citizens among us who are non-believers or non-Christians, that they might convert and become Christians. That's completely appropriate. But I would also suggest then that the government should have no role in that whatsoever. The government shouldn't try to coerce people to become Christians. The government shouldn't favor Protestant churches over others. And so with respect to to the government, there is this uh, prohibition on creating a national church and then by extension the state churches. That you can't have a state church, you can't have an official church in Minnesota, for instance. And so I think it's important to keep our categories straight when we think about how we as Christians should engage in the public square. So one way to look at what you're uh, arguing and what you lay out from a historical standpoint in your book is that uh, this is kind of a, a correction of, of partisans on what might both sides of the Christian nation debate. Uh, some trying to marshal historical facts to uh, at least show an agnostic political order, and then the others trying to marshal historical facts and statements to say that this was truly a Christian nation in Christian identity. Is Just trying to sum this up for our listeners, is that a good way to phrase it, or how would you uh, amend what I just said? You know, that is a very good way to phrase it. So the, the title of the book is a question, Did America Have a Christian Founding?, and there are some popular Christian authors who answer this question with a resounding yes. And they say, in effect, all of America's founders were godly, pious men, maybe even evangelical Christians, and they created an explicitly Christian nation. And I make it clear that I think these are overstatements, to say the least. And yet I'm not so concerned with these popular Christian authors because they don't have a lot of influence outside of already pretty conservative Protestant um, communities. On the other hand, academic ac- after academic has answered this question with a resounding no. They say things like most of America's founders were deists, that they created a godless constitution, that they built a wall of separation between church and state. And you can find these claims in academic book after academic book, popular book after popular book. And so what I do in my book is I set up each chapter, each substantive chapter, um, with about 24 quotations from prominent scholars making these sorts of claims. And then I would like to think that I absolutely demolish these claims, that the uh, idea, for instance, that most of America's founders were deists is just completely unsupportable. The idea that the founders wanted to build a wall of separation between church and state, just completely unsupportable. And so after I demolish those myths, I argue in affirmative ways 
ways in which I think that the founders were influenced by Christian ideas when they created our constitutional order. And again, I would emphasize that this is good news for all citizens today, regardless of their faith traditions or lack thereof. One of the perplexing questions related to this discussion is the way in which those Christian principles and that you're arguing were important for the founding of this country are, are still important today, especially as this nation is far more religiously diverse and pluralistic, um, and there are fewer Christians at the end of the day. So do we need to recover these Christian principles to maintain them, to truly create and maintain uh, an inclusive uh, republic, or is our constitutional framework malleable? What's, what's your point of view on that? Yeah, that's a great question. There's a number of ways in which we could think about that. The founders were convinced to a person that if we're going to have a Republican form of government, that we must have a moral people. And if we are to have a moral people, we must have a a, a deeply Christian people. And they were pretty explicit about the Christian commitment there. So I think it raises interesting questions where no more than 75% of Americans would even identify themselves as Christians today. And of course, that includes people who identify themselves as Christian but haven't bothered to go to church in five years or whatever. Um, But then you have a lot of other people, either from other faith traditions, or nowadays we have a lot more nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And so it does raise questions. If the founders were right that Republican forms of government require moral people, this may be problematic. On the other hand, I think we still do have this constitutional order with things like separation of powers, checks and balances. And so hopefully these more mechanistic um, constitutional provisions can still serve as an important check on power. Let me quickly transition to Establishment Clause issues. One of the arguments of the book is that I've already alluded several times that the First Amendment does not build a wall of separation between church and state. I think the Establishment Clause pretty much means what it says, that we aren't going to have a national church, and now by extension we aren't going to have state churches. But that leaves a lot of room for things like, particularly appropriate this week, presidential calls for um, presidential Thanksgiving Day proclamations. George Washington issued a wonderful one in 1789, very theologically robust, explicitly Christian. And I think that certainly is permissible in light of the Establishment Clause. And yet when presidents in the 21st century have issued Thanksgiving Day proclamations, and they all have, uh, Barack Obama did it, uh, George W. Bush did it, uh, uh, Donald Trump does it, I think it's very appropriate. It would still be constitutionally permissible to issue a very Christian Thanksgiving Day proclamation. But given the diversity in America today, I think it's absolutely appropriate for a president to be inclusive, to encourage Americans to go to their churches or synagogues or mosques or other places of worship. Again, it's not required by the Constitution, but it's just, I think, prudence would suggest that presidents should attempt to unite Americans rather than divide Americans. Turning to the state constitutions, how, do, how does the, the presence in the early state constitutions of clauses on religious liberty that seemed designed to protect mainline Protestantism and sideline what might be called dissenting Protestants, um, Catholics, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and in some cases even had established state churches, how do you reconcile the evidence at the state level with what you're arguing at the federal level? Oh, that's a great question. First of all, some statistics may be in order. In the late 18th century America, about 98% of Americans are Protestants, 2% are Roman Catholic, and again, about 2,000 or so Jews in four American cities. And so a number of states did have Protestant establishments, and a number of states did have religious tests for office, and yet oftentimes 
these religious tests would ban almost no one from holding office because virtually everyone in the state would identify himself, and we're mostly talking about himself here as, as Christians. But I think what you see in the late 18th century is you do begin to see founders coming to question the efficacy of state-established churches. That is, they started to say, wait a minute, does it actually help Christianity to have an official state church tax everyone to support the Anglican Church in Virginia, for instance? And many Americans were coming to the um, conclusion that it does not, that actually it hurts Christianity to have an established church. And they would make arguments referencing Constantine. They would say Christianity was far more pure before Constantine came along and wrecked it by creating, the, by, by making the official Church of the Roman Empire, the, the Catholic Church. And of course, that was really Theodosius. But the point holds that they were starting to argue that, that establishments hurt true Christianity. And so to the extent to which states were abolishing their, their state establishments, four states never had it. The Anglican Church tended to be established in the South. And of course, the war for American independence was fought against the head of the Church of England, the king. And so it's maybe not surprising that these churches were disestablished almost right away. Up in New England, establishments remained in place until the 1830s, and yet these were eventually abolished precisely because founders had come to conclude that they hurt rather than help Christianity. Same with the religious tests for office. Again, by the 1820s, most had been abolished. Some were not. Um, there were North Carolina had a test prohibiting Roman Catholics from holding civic office in the state until like 1865 or so. Some religious tests remained in place until 1961 when a um, U.S. Supreme Court decision finally declared them unconstitutional. Those tended to be very broad tests requiring civic office holders to be merely theist. Which, again, it's a pretty broad test, right? That would allow a Jew, a Catholic, a Protestant to hold civic office. But finally, in 1961, the U.S. Supreme Court said even those have to go, and appropriately so. Personally, I would much rather be represented by a pro-life, fiscally conservative Sikh than a pro-choice, fiscally irresponsible Protestant. There would just be no question in my mind. And so I think religious tests were a very bad idea, and I'm glad they're gone today. Coming at this from a Catholic angle, the the late John Courtney Murray wrote a book called We Hold These Truths. I don't know if you're familiar with that book or Absolutely. not. Absolutely. It's a great book. Um, and he argued that the founders built better than they knew, and he was arguing that the Catholic Church should embrace the American founding and the principles of the American founding as a, an ideal place in which both Catholicism from an evangelical standpoint and Christianity more general could flourish in this disestablished context in which that didn't mean the separation of morality from public life, right? We could still have robust arguments uh, about what constitutes the public good, but there was no established church in the United States. And there's an appreciation by Murray and uh, Murrayites today in the Catholic world for the American constitutional experiment, what the founders did. And I think that really comes across uh, in your book as well. But we're also as challenged with uh, what people call the original sin of the founding, which is slavery, right? So how do we deal with the imperfections of the founders that many try to discredit this great Christian founding uh, with the sins of the founders? How do we reconcile? How would you respond to uh, a skeptic like that who really who argues that we shouldn't be looking back to these imperfect men because of their misdeeds and slavery and all this other stuff. And in fact, the founding was really a flawed project. Well, let me say first, I love John Courtney Murray, and I think he deserves a great deal of credit. And his influence on Vatican II, of, of, of course, is just very important for the Roman Catholic Church worldwide. 
Um, with respect to slavery, I actually had a brief section of my conclusion addressing that, but it was one of three things I was trying to address quickly in the conclusion. I ended up convincing my editor that it would be better to save these three items for a sequel to this book and flesh them out into chapters. And, and one of those is, in fact, the way the founders approached slavery. And I think that is um, a very important issue to consider. So I would say a couple of things. First of all, I think it's important to recognize that pretty much every society throughout all of human history has had slavery. And it's really only in the, in the Christian West, particularly in the 18th century, that Christians started to recognize that this institution is fundamentally cutting against the fact that we're created in the image of God, that it's a violation of natural standards of justice and this sort of thing. And we can argue there's a few European countries that got to this a little bit before some American states. But between 1776 and 1804, you actually have eight states voluntarily putting slavery on the path to extinction through gradual manumission laws, usually, although sometimes immediate manumission. And so I think by the time you get to the late 18th century, many, many founders were coming to see that slavery is a profoundly troubling institution, an evil institution, a horrible institution, an institution that must be dealt with. And so they were acting at their state levels um, to, to address that. When it came to creating a national constitutional order, the Southern delegates and the Federal Convention were just crystal clear. If this new Constitution bans slavery, the Constitution will not be ratified by any state south of the Mason-Dixon line. And so this is a very important um, prudential question then. Do you just say, okay, to heck with you, South, you go your own way, and those states north of the Mason-Dixon line will go our own way? And what would be better for enslaved um, people in America? I think the founders probably made it the best possible choice of, of very bad choices. Say, okay, we'll go with the Union. We'll have a constitution that doesn't mention slavery, but that permits Congress to ban the slave trade in 1808, which it did as soon as it could. And there was a great deal of optimism, I think, that slavery would be abolished pretty rapidly. The Northwest Ordinance, that ordinance passed by the late Confederation Congress, reauthorized by the first federal Congress, banned slavery in the Northwest Territory, that is Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, and that sort of thing. And so there was this hope that as America grew, grew west, the number of free states would grow, and eventually slavery would be put on the path to extinction. Unfortunately, in certain respects, Eli Whitney invents the cotton gin in 1794, and this makes slavery far more profitable in the American South. And I think owners of slave and Southern politicians became far more deeply entrenched in the institution. But even so, I think it's noteworthy that it's not until 18, the 1830s that some people began to defend slavery as a positive good. Prior to 1830, it was always sort of a, an icky, bad institution that we're somehow stuck with. I would say it's very reasonable to critique America's founders with respect to slavery, but when we understand the broader context, I, th I think we can maybe be, be a bit more understanding what, about what they did and why they did it. I would also say that I don't think my argument necessitates that I prove that the founders were perfect in every respect. We can admit that they were flawed people, just like the disciples were flawed people, just like all popes have been flawed people, just like every human throughout all of human history has been flawed, right? And the fact that they were flawed does not mean that in very important ways they were influenced by their Christian convictions when they created America's constitutional order. Well, we'll wait uh, with bated breath for your next book on slavery and the founding, among other uh, challenging questions. What else, Professor Hall, do you want uh, our listeners to know about your book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? You know, a pretty important thing is that I've written or edited a dozen academic books published by presses like Notre Dame, Cambridge, and Oxford 
this is my first book explicitly aimed at the general reading public. So it's a very accessible book. It could be read by a smart, intellectually curious high school student, certainly by college students. And you're just, uh, I would imagine any of your readers could pick it up, read it. It would be enjoyable. And even if they're already sympathetic to the sort of arguments that I'm making, I think it would equip them to better make those arguments in the public square. And if they're skeptical of it, I'm pretty optimistic that would convince them that I'm making some pretty good arguments um, that should be taken very seriously. So I'd encourage your readers to take a look at it, your, your listeners, I should say. And it is definitely an engaging read, and we're glad you joined us today. Uh, Dr. Mark David Hall is Herbert Hoover, Distinguished Professor of Politics at George Fox University in Newburgh, Oregon. His book is Did America Have a Christian Founding? A fine and engaging read and some important topics to wrestle with. Thanks for joining us on The Bridge Build today, Dr. Hall. God bless your work. Hey, thanks so much, Jason. Appreciate it. Have a good day. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. Right now, we're going to delve into our mailbag segment to hear what comments and questions you've been sending our way. Kit, what have you got for us in the mailbag? Yeah, so in light of the Supreme Court's hearing on presidential authority to end the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, or DACA, as it's more commonly referred to, The Minnesota Catholic Conference has encouraged Congress to pass comprehensive immigration reform and specifically for the Senate to pass the DREAM Act of 2019, which would provide DACA recipients a pathway to citizenship. In light of all of this, we've received questions asking whether this bill and similar bills uphold what the catechism teaches on immigration. So, Jason, could you explain for us what exactly does the catechism teach with regard to immigration? And is there a solution for our broken immigration system that actually upholds what the church teaches? Let's just do a brief primer on the, some of the policies that you mentioned. DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, was an executive order um, imposed by President Obama, basically saying that immigration enforcement resources were not going to be used to target people who came to the United States as minors illegally, and they were not going to be enforcement priorities for immigrations and customs officials. They were going to have deferred action. In other words, those cases were going to be put off and resources were going to be focused on other um, immigration and enforcement uh, actions and people outside of those who came to the U.S. as minors. President Trump ended that executive order, reversed that. That's being uh, litigated in federal court right now as to whether or not that was legitimate. Uh, I think President Trump's impetus or what he said was that he was trying to get Congress to act. And indeed, Congress is the right one uh, to uh, lay out federal immigration policy. So that was perfectly legitimate from the standpoint of wanting Congress to act. Still, we don't want people who came here as children and in many cases know no other country but the United States to be deported and separated from their families. And so that's why the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, the bishops of Minnesota, support passing the DREAM Act of 2019 to protect childhood arrivals and to ensure they won't be deported and then ultimately to give them a pathway to citizenship. Now, the question is, what does the catechism teach about immigration? Section 2241 is the most relevant section. There's not a ton, actually, in the catechism. You have to go to the compendium of the social doctrine of the church and the magisterium of the popes and the uh, teaching documents of National Bishops Conference to speak more in depth about this. But again, the catechism is meant to provide general principles that can be applied in a number of different historical and geographical con- uh 
um, context. Two important paragraphs. The more prosperous natives are obliged to the extent they are able, this is section 2241, to welcome the foreigner in search of the security and means of livelihood, which he cannot find in his country of origin. Public authorities should see to it that natural right is respected, that places a guest under the protection of those who receive him. So there's a duty, especially on the part of the more prosperous nations, to welcome the immigrant and to welcome the stranger. That doesn't mean it's a blank check to come into the country and do as you please. Political authorities, it says, for the sake of the common good for which they are responsible, may exercise of the right to immigrate subject to various juridical conditions. So we can impose particular conditions, especially with regard to immigrants' duties to toward their own country of adoption. Immigrants are obliged to respect with gratitude the material and spiritual heritage of the country that receives them, to obey its laws, and to insist in carrying civic burdens. These are all very, very good principles that the Catechism applies. It basically says, with regard to both the migrant and the host country and the citizens of the host country, there are rights and responsibilities. There's certainly the natural right to migrate, to especially escape for reasons of asylum or to be refugees, to enter into another country for safety, security, for peace. But there's also a, a right to migrate as well when economic conditions are such that it's impossible to make a living or one fears for one's life to make a better home. But that doesn't mean, again, that there's no conditions that can be opposed on that right as well. And so do these policies that the church is promoting, are they consistent with that? I think it's a resounding yes. The challenges in our particular context here is that we have a broken immigration system. So for whatever reason, there are over 12 million people undocumented here uh, who are living in the United States. We're not going to deport them. It's just a reality. We're not going to separate them from our families. And that's kind of a uh, the North Star of our policy towards this is not separating families, not breaking families apart. Yes, we should have respect for laws. Yes, people who are refugees who've sought asylum here should respect our laws, customs, behave appropriately, embrace our civic traditions. But we have a broken immigration system. How do we fix that? How do we balance those what seem like competing responsibilities and competing considerations, aid our duties toward the migrant, but also at the same time, the ways in which we need to provide for the common good of our own citizens as well. So these are complexing questions, but I think the uh, approach of the U.S. bishops is to call for comprehensive immigration reform that uh, respects families, that respects the national might to migrate, but also respects our borders as well, and to do so in a comprehensive way that binds all these interests together as opposed to a piecemeal fashion. Unfortunately, that's been a long time coming and hasn't happened for many political reasons. So in the meantime, what are the concrete things we can do to help particular populations or in our local places. So we've supported the immigrant driver's license for undocumented persons here in Minnesota, but we also support DACA, the DACA provision or the DREAM Act uh, at the federal level in the meantime while we wait for more comprehensive approaches to immigration reform. So a resounding yes with regard to its consistency uh, with the principles in the catechism. Well, it's time to turn to our bricklayer segment, and we want to provide you with a practical way that you can live your faith in public life. Kit, what do we have for the bricklayer segment today. What's one practical thing that Catholics can do, especially during this holiday season, to bring our faith into the public arena? The idea that we're kind of throwing out there this week is why not send some Christmas cards to all of your elected leaders? An easy way not only to help remind them that Christ is the true reason for the season, but it's a good way to just simply help build bridges of goodwill. You can wish them Merry Christmas, thank them for their service, Try to find at least one bill or issue on which you can thank them for their work or even specifically their vote. And we do have a directory of all of the elected officials on our website. You can find that directory by going to mncatholic.org slash action center. 
and there you'll put in your address and it will pull up all of your elected officials and you can find all of their information. Jason, do you have anything else you want to add? Rare is the public official who doesn't appreciate your prayers and doesn't matter if they're Christian or non-Christian. People appreciate the encouragement. They appreciate being acknowledged for the work and the sacrifices they make. And that's part of building up a healthy civil discourse and a healthy uh, political culture as well, is that that even when we disagree, uh, we can embrace them as friends. And that's what we are called to do is embrace our elected leaders as our friends working together for the good. One other prayer resource, as I mentioned in this regard, too, is for our own sake, is the Litany of Humility. It was a prayer composed by Cardinal Raphael Mary Del Valle, who was Secretary of State to Pope Pius X. Just a really beautiful prayer, especially for those um, actively engaged in public life to remind ourselves of our littleness, the responsibility that we're given, and really that it's about not seeking to always be understood, but to model discipleship, to model holiness, to model the truth in all things that we do. So really commend that to our listeners, the Litany of Humility by Cardinal Mary Del Valle. That's all the time we have for today, but remember, you or your organization can become a sponsor of The Bridge Builder. By doing so, you help others bring the Catholic faith into the public arena. For opportunities, contact our producer, Kit Cross, and you can email her at show at mncatholic.org. Listeners, you can also be a part of our mailbag segment. Just send any of your questions or comments to show at mncatholic.org or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Remember, you can catch up on any past episodes of The Bridge Builder online at mncatholic.org slash podcast or search for The Bridge Builder Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Thank you for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder Show. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and politics. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Cross, the Minnesota Catholic Conference, have a very blessed weekend.